Welcome to the A Catholic Life Podcast. I am Matthew, the author of A Catholic Life, welcoming you to episode 15 of the A Catholic Life Podcast. In today's episode on Pentecost Sunday, I'm happy to address the following topics. First, the ancient and yet forgotten customs of this octave of Pentecost. While Pentecost is one of the most important feast days in the entire life of the Church, many of the customs associated with Pentecost and in the week that follows have been utterly forgotten. I address some of those here today, and I provide a link in the show notes so you can learn about those in much more detail. Secondly, I address briefly the upcoming feast days this week in honor of Our Lady. We are very close to ending the month of May now, and with the end of May on May 31st, there's actually feast days in some parts of the world in honor of many different titles of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I address those as well as provide a link in the show notes so you can learn more and read more about the spirituality and prayers of those days. And finally, I briefly address a recent article that I wrote for the Fatima Center entitled Can Popes Air? I go over some actual specific details to show how popes can actually make personal errors. Of course, the pope can sin. He is not impeccable. And the pope can also make, uh, you know, imprudent decisions. We know this from a fact from how some popes have acted in the past in their own conduct of life, as well as some uh, different decisions they've done, different hymns they've implemented, different missile changes they've had, which were... um, actually not long after they were instituted, were actually reversed. So we can see popes can make uh, different errors, but what does that mean, and when can they not make an error? Before, though, we go into those topics, I'd like to spend a moment to thank Meaning of Catholic for sponsoring today's episode. Meaning of Catholic recently launched an online storefront where they offer PDF copies of some excellent books, including two of my own, The Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Abstinence, which is available in three different languages, English, Spanish, and Polish, as well as The Roman Catechism Explained for the Modern World. A few other books there to add to your library include PDF copies of some books written by Timothy Flanders, as well as Kennedy Hall, both great different Catholic writers, and I would encourage you to check out the online store to look at their books as well. Please visit meaningofcatholic.com backslash shop. That's, again, meaningofcatholic.com backslash shop to check it out today. First and foremost, though, let us now go into the first topic of this lesson. That is the different customs associated with Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday is one of the most important feasts in the entire life of the church. Unfortunately, though, since its octave was abolished in the Novus Ordo in the 1960s, so little emphasis has been placed on Pentecost as a result. And sadly, the vigil of Pentecost was suppressed entirely in 1956, and it's only recently been rediscovered by Catholics seeking to restore our practices that were lost in the years preceding Vatican II. Now, the vigil of Pentecost, as I mentioned in the episode last week, was a required day of fasting and absence, and I still encourage people to observe it as such. Total fasting and total absence. What I mean by that is no meat, um, as well as only one meal a day, so standard fasting rules. 
But now we're on Pentecost, the day after the vigil. Pentecost Sunday is also known as Whit Sunday, or in English, sometimes called White Sunday. And this is uh, the case because it refers to the ancient practices where baptisms were associated with the vigil of Pentecost. Now, as was the case with Easter, the newly baptized would wear white garments to Mass on Pentecost in celebration of their baptisms. And the very ancient church, the vigil of Pentecost, was actually celebrated like the vigil of Easter during the nighttime. Now, Father Weezer, uh, the author of the Handbook of Christian Feasts and Customs, comments on some special customs which took place at the Vigil of Pentecost. For instance, he writes, quote, Like Easter night, the night of Pentecost is considered one of the great blessed nights of the year. In many sections of Europe, it is still the custom to ascend hilltops and mountains during the early dawn of Whit Sunday to pray. People call this observance catching the Holy Ghost. Thus they express in symbolic language the spiritual fact that only by means of prayer can the divine dove be caught up and the grace of the Holy Ghost obtained, end quote. In addition to, to this, it's important to note that Pentecost is actually a feast day which goes back to the Old Testament. Now, Pentecost, the actual feast day in the Old Testament, referred to um, our God giving Moses the, the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. And Pentecost was a feast day set up, a, actually quite an important one, to commemorate that. So if we understand that, we see when we celebrate Pentecost, we are celebrating it as receiving not just the tablets of the law, but God himself. So by understanding what the connection is to the Old Testament, we can see what a greater gift this new Pentecost is. We receive not tablets of stone, which God has written himself, but we receive God himself in our souls. And we have truly received the gifts of Pentecost if we have been confirmed. We have received the same privileges which were conferred upon the apostles and those to whom the Holy Ghost came and descended upon. Recalling today our confirmation and our mission to go out and live for Christ and to save souls is of paramount importance. Now, in addition to recalling this, there are certain ways we've seen it done um, through different customs associated with different practices in churches, one of which I think is the most famous is the custom that occurs in the Pantheon in Rome. Now, the Pantheon is now a minor basilica dedicated to the Most Blessed Virgin Mary and all of the martyrs. Now, uh, on Pentecost Sunday, they actually strew rose petals through the oculus opening in the top of the Pantheon, and it falls on the congregation below, and it's reminiscent of the coming of the Holy Ghost like tongues of flame. And in Chicago, this custom is kept alive, where at the end of all Masses on Pentecost Sunday at St. John Cantius in Chicago, rose petals are dropped through the circular opening at the transept of the church during the recessional hymn, Come a Holy Ghost. Some are surprised, while others wait expectantly every year for the roses to fall, recalling the same coming of the Holy Ghost physically. Customs are important for our life and our families and our children because they help make the faith more alive. We see them. We can touch them. These are memories that will last a lifetime, really, in some situations. Think of all the different customs and traditions associated with Christmas or with Easter. We need to get back to living out many of these more customs throughout our life, not just on these two principal feasts, but Pentecost as well and many other saints' feasts as well. Now, Roses are not, though, the only flower associated with Pentecost. In the Byzantine Catholic tradition, green is the vestment color of Pentecost, since the Byzantine tradition highlights Pentecost's connection with the new springtime of the church and the corresponding birth of nature and the rebirth of souls 
in baptism. Another thing I'd like to mention is that for a very long time, Pentecost Monday and Pentecost Tuesday were holy days of obligation. Now, during the early centuries of the church, just the day of Pentecost Sunday was celebrated in the Western church. But after the 7th century, the whole week came to be considered a time of a festive observance. Law courts did not sit and servile work was forbidden during the entire octave. However, by the year 1094, at the Council of Constance, this prohibition was limited to just three days. That is Pentecost Sunday, Pentecost Monday, and Pentecost Tuesday. We find in 1642, in the listing which Pope Urban VIII issued in Universi per Orbum, Pentecost Monday and Pentecost Tuesday still being listed as Holy Days of Obligation, of course, in addition to Pentecost Sunday and all the other Sundays of the year. However, in 1771, so roughly 130 years later, Pope Clement XIV abolished both Easter Tuesday and Pentecost Tuesday as days of restraining from servile work. And seven years later, in 1778, they ceased being obligatory days of mass attendance. Thus, they ceased being holy days of obligation. Pentecost Monday was dropped from the universal list in only 1911, made in part, really made by the significant changes with which uh, Pope uh, St. Pius X made. He significantly reduced the number of Holy Days of Obligation in the Universal Church. Now keep in mind, not all places, and even not many places, kept all of these different feast days which were on the Universal calendar. So thus, in America, Pentecost Monday at the time of 1911 was not a Holy Day of Obligation. It has ceased being one quite a bit of uh, uh, time beforehand. But what is interesting, as we see with um, the Monday after Easter, Easter Monday, Pentecost Monday, because it was a holy day for so long, is still kept as a holiday in many countries. For instance, it's still a public holiday in the Bahamas, in Barbados, in Belgium, in Cyprus, Denmark, France, Greece, Germany, Iceland, the Ivory Coast, Luxembourg, Monaco, the Netherlands, St. Kitts, Switzerland, Ukraine, and other countries. Until 1973, it was also a holiday in Ireland. And until 1967, it was a bank holiday in the United Kingdom. Sweden continued to observe it as a public holiday until 2004. So we see, unfortunately, some changes occurring there because of man really growing uh, remiss into the observance of of the divine uh, law. And we lost so much in these traditions, uh, especially after Vatican II, not all these places are, are have that connection with them as a generation's face. So we can do our part to help restore that. And one of the traditions which we can importantly observe this week is the Ember Days. Now, the Ember Days are set aside as days to pray and offer thanksgiving for a good harvest and for God's blessing. These should be days kept as fasting and days of abstinence. They will be this coming Wednesday, this coming Friday, and this coming Saturday. Since the late 5th century, Ember Days were also the preferred dates for ordination for priests. So during this time, the church has a threefold focus. One, sanctifying the season by turning to God through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Two, giving thanks to God for the various harvests of each season. And three, praying for the newly ordained and for future vocations to the priesthood. Let us do our part this week by keeping those Ember Days and offering up the prayer and the fasting and the absence of Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday for this intention, and preparing for next Sunday, the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity. The second topic I'd like to discuss today, very briefly, is the final feast at the end of this month, especially as they concern the Feast of the Most Blessed Virgin Mary. 
Now, May 30th is Tuesday, is the Feast of St. Felix I on the Universal Calendar, but in some places it's also the Feast of St. Ferdinand III and St. Joan of Arc. And on May 31st is the traditional Feast of the Queenship of Mary. And it also features a commemoration of St. Petronella. But what is interesting to note is that there's many other feast days in some parts of the world kept for different titles of the Most Blessed Virgin Mary as we finished this month dedicated to her. For instance, Our Lady Queen of All Saints and Mother of Fair Love is also kept on May 31st. Um, that's a feast that is really not mentioned uh, very much. You can find them sometimes at the very back of the missal. I'll have a link in the show notes so you can read some of the propers from that beautiful feast day. And the other feast day kept on May 31st that I think is really important to mention is Our Lady Mediatrix of All Graces. How is Our Lady the Mediatrix of All Graces? What does this mean? Why uh, do we refer to her this? What does it mean, especially in relation to her divine son? I'll have a link in the show notes to that. But it's important to note that while there is only one mediator between God and man, that does not preclude the ability for there to be other mediators. Just like if I were to pray for you, you were to ask me to pray for you, I could help mediate on your behalf. And in the same way, the Most Blessed Virgin Mary is truly the mediatrix of all graces, the the mediator of all mediators. Now, St. John Vianney said, All the saints have a great devotion to Our Lady. No grace comes from heaven without passing through her hands. We cannot go into a house without speaking to the doorkeeper. Well, the Holy Virgin is the doorkeeper of heaven. I'll have a link in the show notes, as I mentioned, so you can learn more about that, and especially going over different comics, uh, comments which the great Dominican Father uh, Gergou Lagrange talks about as it concerns Our Lady, Mediatrix of All Graces. And the final topic I'd like to mention is something that really gets uh, a lot of uh, talk in the traditional world online, and that is um, Can Pope's Air. Can Pope's air personally? And I, and I hope everybody understands that, yes, a pope can certainly err personally. There are limits to papal infallibility, limits that Vatican I very clearly specified. I don't think anybody would ever claim the pope cannot sin. Um, that is certainly not the case. Now, Father John Locke stated in, um, in his famous Catholic apologetic series, quote, the first Vatican Council did not declare that the Pope cannot sin, neither did it declare that he can in no way err, nor that he cannot personally hold erroneous views in matters of faith, but merely that he is infallible, not subject to err, when he decides ex cathedra, that is, as head and teacher of the whole church, upon matters of faith and morals, end quote. Far from a merely intellectual exercise, history indicates that popes can be guilty of prudential errors and of governing debacles. They can enforce unjust legislation. They can enforce decrees against the common good. They can certainly be immoral and fall into mortal sins themselves. They can hold errors in personal beliefs and even teach error in catechesis and doctrine. None of these contradict the grace of infallibility bestowed upon the papal office by God. The pope only exercises his negative charism of infallibility when one... As teacher of the universal church, he, too, defines a matter of faith and morals, three, which must be accepted and believed by all of Christ's disciples. Now, I go over in an article uh, instances from uh, the scriptures where St. Paul rebukes St. Peter. I also discuss Pope Honorus I, 
Pope Paschal II, as well as Pope John XXII. Now, Pope John XXII actually had heretical views as it concerned uh, the beatific vision after death and when somebody would actually have that vision. He did recount these views on his deathbed, and his successor, uh, Pope uh, Benedict XII, issued Benedictus Deus on the beatific vision of God in 1336, where he defined dogmatically a number of things, many of which were contrary to the personal views that John XXVII held until his death, where he finally recanted those on his deathbed. I'll have links in the show notes so you can learn more about this, but it's important to note that we do not worship the Pope. We do not think that he is God on earth. He is merely Christ's vicar, and like St. Peter who can err, we pray that uh, we be preserved from bad popes, but popes certainly can err, and we, we must pray for them uh, at all times. And we certainly pray that God will grant us a most holy um, uh, prelate in the future, um, a much holier pope, uh, as well as holy bishops and, and holy priests. We should be praying for these intentions, for more vocations to the priesthood, for, for more holy vocations and holy families as well, especially during these Ember Days. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I'd like to wish all of you a most blessed Pentecost Sunday. May God grant you all a most blessed end to this Paschal Tide. Thank you so much for your support of uh, the A Catholic Life podcast, my work, and my episodes. And again, please check out meaningofcatholic.com backslash shop to learn more. And please consider ordering for only a few dollars some of the excellent PDF books currently available for sale there. Again, thank you, and God bless you all. We don't need